بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله حمد الشاكرين والصلاة والسلام على أشرف الأنبياء سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على سيدنا محمد طب القلوب ودوائي أنور الأبصار وضيائي وعافية الأبدان وشفائها وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا محمد كلما ذكرك الذاكرون وغفل عن ذكرك الغافلون Today's subject with regard to doubts regarding Islam and their rebuttal This subject, the inception point is from the causes of doubt What actually causes doubt? One of the main reasons that we will observe people who have doubts with regard to Islam is firstly a cultural invasion. A cultural invasion entails that the mind is affected by whatever dominant superpower you have that has hegemony over the world in terms of political or military or economically across the globe. So for instance, people in China or people in Africa or people in India, they will wear Western clothing, but you will never observe an Englishman wearing African or Chinese or Arabian or Indian clothing. This is a cultural invasion. When you have a cultural invasion in the form that you have today, why is today's cultural invasion more deadly than previous cultural invasions? Because today we have the means of communication, satellite TV channels, media channels. What do these do? They infiltrate even remote villages, places where people were not, they were not encountering such type of invasions. And similarly with the inception of the internet, people have access to all sorts of information. In previous times, the access to information was limited, but in the modern times, access to information is available to people in remote areas. So when people, they are bombarded with different ideas, they can fall into doubt with regard to basic precepts basic concepts. Why do you think today there are even people who believe in a flat earth? There are people today that believe the earth is flat and there is even a flat earth movement. Despite the fact that there is education available, those people are bombarded with information that they can then not process. So if someone does not have a professional training, a professional capacity in processing information, they can be bombarded with information which then can misguide them even with regard to basic things. Sometimes if a person bombards you with so much information that you cannot digest the information and process the information correctly, you can become misguided on very basic things. Like believing the earth is flat, for instance. So, 
in the same way, we have people presenting misinformation with regard to Islam. And then you have young people being bombarded with this information. But is it limited to that? The answer is no. There is also misguidance through shahwat. What is shahwat? Shahwat is the desires. That someone becomes overwhelmed with their desires to do that which is impermissible. And then they become habitual in violating the Sharia of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to the point that the desires overwhelm them and then they decide to follow the desires over the Sharia of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Sometimes a person can have anxiety because they do certain sins and they know those sins are right or wrong to do. And because they know those sins are wrong to do, they become overwhelmed and in order to rid themselves of this, they do what they become unbelievers, thinking that by becoming disbelievers, they free themselves of that worry and stress with regard to sinning. And this is what the Salaf, the Salaf Salihun, they said that the sins are the Reedul Kufri. Sins are the letters of unbelief. Because when a person becomes habitual in sinning, then the heart will feel qalaq, which is anxiety. And in order to rid themselves of that anxiety, what do some people do? They become unbelievers totally to rid themselves. They think that will get rid of the anxiety. It's a trick of the shaitan. In reality, the sinful Muslim is still better off because the sinful Muslim still has ultimate salvation. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa said, Shafa'ati li ahli al-kabairi min ummati. My intercession is for people of major sins from my nation. And man qala la ilaha illallah dakhal al-jannah. Whoever says la ilaha illallah, and in one version of the hadith, from the heart with conviction, they enter paradise. Meaning those who have iman. So someone should never abandon the deen of Allah simply because their desires overwhelm them. But sometimes the desires may overwhelm a person to the point that they make the haram into halal. And that will also make them leave the fold of Islam. Then other times what might be coupled with this is that sometimes you have people leaving the fold of an Islam because they have emotional issues. They may have issues, they may have had issues with their upbringing, which brings about psychological problems. And due to that, you have young minds affected, like what we have today uh, in an organized fashion, uh, body dysphoria, and then uh, gender dysphoria, uh, and body dysmorphia, these names they give with regard to what a person becoming confused with regard to their gender. That gets mixed up with what? With belief. Because a person, a man who is a cross-dresser, he will be mentally affected. And then when he is not socially accepted, he leaves the fold of Islam because Islam prohibits such things. 
and similarly with other misguided behavior and deviancies. These are some of the emotional and psychological reasons for leaving the deen of Islam. Then the doubts with regard to Islam, they have a foundation also with people not having the correct way of thinking. You will be surprised with how many cases I have dealt with here in Yorkshire alone, how many people I have met who have left Islam, but when I probe them for their reasons, they are not based on ilm and knowledge. They have flimsy foundations. But when I made an inquiry into the method thought process of thinking, I came to the conclusion that these people, they do not have a strong epistemological grounding, a method of verifying facts. It's not their fault. You will sometimes have graduates who study for seven to eight years, but they will not have any uh, principle foundation to validate their points. They will not know usul. They will not know any principles and how to articulate those principles. So I will give you a summary of basic principles which every Muslim should know. Number one, in Islam, we accept the rational judgment. We accept the judgment of the mind. For instance, there is something known as Badiyat, uh, something in Badihi, self-evident. Uh, if we say one and one is two, that's something self-evident. At the same time, we do not accept when the mind has contradictions on a given judgment. For instance, something being still and paradoxically moving at the same time. Some these type of paradoxical judgments are not accepted by the mind. We cannot say something is moving and still at the same time. It's a contradiction, tanahu. These are basic rational judgments. Likewise, signification. If we see something that signifies to something, we will conclude what it signifies. Like if I see smoke from far, the smoke signifies fire. These are judgments of the sound mind. But similarly, uh, do we limit ourselves to the mind? The answer is no. We believe in sensory perception. We believe the, what we perceive with our senses from our sight, our hearing, our, the sense of what touching and these type of sensory perceptions that is validated in the Quran where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that do not follow that which you have no knowledge of. وَلَا تَقْفُ مَا لَيْسَ لَكَ Do not follow that which you have no knowledge of. إِنَّ السَّمَعَ وَالْبَصَرَ وَالْفُؤَادَ كُلُّ أُولَٰئِكَ كَانَ عَنْهُ مَسْئُولًا That indeed the hearing, the eyesight, and the heart, all of these will be questioned regarding knowledge. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala validates this method of whatever sensory perception we have. You will be surprised how many people have a convoluted 
methodology like a so-called Quranist person who rejects the Sunnah who I was debating a few weeks ago. Many times what happens is I meet people, I have many debates in private. But what happens afterwards when those debates are not recorded, afterwards those people will claim a victory. Which is a mistake of mine. I should always record the debate. But nevertheless I had a debate with the Quranist only a few weeks ago. And a simple question came up. That question I said, because he was claiming the earth is flat. And don't get that mixed up, because there are so many students of knowledge who sometimes say, didn't Al-Imam Ahmad Rida Khan believe in a flat earth? Please get your facts right. At least read his works. So many of these graduates, they probably haven't even read five Arabic works of Al-Imam Ahmad Rida Khan. Rahimahullah. I would be surprised even if they understand one Arabic work of his. Because he was a high level what? Mutakallim. Theologian. High level Mutakallim. When you read his books of Kalam. He mentions the stationary earth which is something totally different. Not a flat, flat earth. And interestingly enough, Ibn Hazm, the the Andalusian scholar. He mentions Ijma' consensus on Kurwiyatul Ard, the roundness of the earth. And Abu Abbas Ahmed bin Taymiyyah, well known scholar, he also affirms that. He affirms the roundness of the earth. Al Imam Fakhruddin al Razi, the author of the Tafsir, he also discusses the roundness of the earth. So don't get this mixed up. Flat earth was only ever mentioned by a minority of ulama. A minority. So I said to this flat earther, because he said, look, we observe the earth, we do not see that the earth is round. So I said to him, okay, when we have a lunar eclipse, what we observe, the full moon, you will observe that the earth comes between the sun and the moon. What will you observe on the surface of the moon? You will observe the roundness of the earth. That's with our sensory perception. You see the roundness, the, the shadow of the earth. If the earth was like a disc, then you would see a, a line across the moon. But you do not see a line. So what did this so-called Quranists do? Quranists are people who reject the Sunnah. He said, our eyesight could be deluded. Our eyesight could be deluded. We may not have been observing the earth. So what can you say? He's contradicting the Quran. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala validates the vision of the eye. Inna sam'a, sam'a hearing, wal basara, the eyesight, wal fu'ada, the heart. All of these will be questioned with regard to knowledge. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us this methodology. How many times in the Quran is the verb yatafakkarun or the, what is derived from that meaning to think? Yatafakkarun. To think is utilized in the Quran Kareem a minimum of 18 times. Yatafakkarun. And yaqilun. Ya'qilun, to utilize the intellect 
over a minimum of 50 times in the Quran. So we are supposed to think. We are meant to utilize our minds. Ya'qilun. Note that it's a verb. Ya'qilun. The verb is for active. Active tense. Meaning actively use your mind. So the mind is validated in the Quran. The, the, the eyesight and the vision and hearing is validated in the Quran. But also khabar. What is khabar? How we have valid reports coming to us. When some report comes to us, which relates to observation, people observe something, we validate that thing as long as it does not contradict the mind. Now when we enter into the discussion of doubts regarding Islam, some people they will pick up on a verse of the Quran. This is the common feature with all the YouTubers, with all the people presenting doubts. They either pick a verse of the Quran or a hadith of the Prophet and attempt to place the doubt in the mind of the believer with regard to that verse or the, Quran, the hadith. An example, they will say there is a hadith which mentions that the sun every day it takes permission from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when it goes underneath the throne to prostrate. It prostrates under the throne and it takes permission from Allah and they say how can the sun prostrate? A simple objection that can place a person in doubt with regard to his deen but if you have the correct methodology, the correct methodology is what? That anything that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala informs us of, that we cannot perceive with our sensory perception, it has a modality, a quiddity that is real in that realm. That's a rule. If we cannot perceive something, it has a reality in that realm. But when the word sajda, prostration, is used for inanimate objects, like the Quran informs us that the sun and the moon and so many various things, they perform sajda to Allah. That does not entail sajda the way a human being performs sajda. Like if I said an inanimate object like a pen is performing sajda, you may observe the pen, but the pen, it doesn't mean that the pen bows down onto the ground with, with a supposed forehead like a human being. It means what? That it is subjugated to the power of Allah. So what that means is that the sun is subjugated at all times to the power of Allah. And what does it mean to be under the throne? The entire seven heavens is under the throne of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the sun is always under the throne. Like this, when you come across hadith in Sahih al-Bukhari or Sahih al-Imam Muslim, and it relates to the unseen, there is a simple rule. Number one is everything that exists observable by our faculties. The answer is no. So that which is not observable by our faculties, is it possible? The answer is yes. Meaning like paradise, hellfire, news of the unseen, akhbar al like the height of Adam alayhi salam, 
these type of hadith. Because we do not observe it, does it mean it is unreal? The answer is no. Has it been disproven by science? And that makes us enter another aspect of doubts with regard to Islam. Is there an actual clash between science and Islam? The answer is no. Uh, the claim that science can resolve all problems is known as scientism. What is scientism? Scientism is resorting to science for everything. Is this a valid way of living our lives? The answer is no. Because there are so many ethical questions that science can never answer. How Islam defines science is in a limited way. That science is experimentation with the material realm. Whatever exists in the material realm, experimentation for the benefit of humankind, which gives us the, the resultant of what various inventions and technological means that we have today. But can science dictate to us an ethical and moral code? The answer is no. For instance, we know incest is wrong. But do we know that through science? The answer is no. People who make their ethics and morals based upon science, they will come out with contradicting morals, contradicting precepts, contradicting principles. They will come out with things which are absurd. And they have done so. Validating bestiality, validating incest, validating so many harmful things to humanity. But in Islam, we treat science as what? As something to do with the material world, but not to take our morals and ethics from. Islam informs us with regard to the metaphysical realm. What is the metaphysical realm? The word meta, it means to be beyond. And physical is the physical realm. The metaphysical realm is that which is beyond the physical world. Where did the human soul come from? From Alul Arwah, the world of souls. Where did life itself come from? By Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala placing the soul inside of the human biological body, which is also formulated by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Where is the human being heading? He is heading towards the Barzakh, the world beyond this plane. And then from the Barzakh to Al-Hashar, to the, the plains of the resurrection. And then to paradise, Al-Jannah or Al-Nar, Hellfire. This is the journey of the human. Islam informs us of this. Science does not inform us of this reality. Science is limited in its scope. Yet there are some young Muslims who become so deluded. But when you probe them, you will realize how ignorant they are actually of science itself. Because real scientists, aside from the hardline atheist Richard Dawkins types, the real scientists will know the limitations of science. They will inform you of the limitations science actually has. But they will also be able to tell you that science has nothing to say regarding so many things like governance. How do you govern a city? Governance not everything to do with governance relates to science or scientific research. So the scope of science, young Muslims and elderly Muslims should not be deluded with regard to the scope of science. Then 
Some Muslims, they face the problem of facing humanist philosophies as an alternative to Islam. How they say that Islam violates human rights. How does Islam theoretically, according to them, violate human rights? They will mention punishments, like Al-Hudud punishments. Human rights today, uh, for instance, in Europe, they have the court of human rights, which entails rights for criminals. You have criminals in the British justice system who were disappointed when uh, Britain brexited, Britain left the EU because criminals cannot apply for human rights. When in Islam we have a different concept. In Islam we have the concept of al ibad. What is al ibad? Note the difference. al ibad is the right of the servants. The humans are defined as servants. But what are they servants of? Are they servants of a system? The answer is no. Are they, are they servants of the Caliph? The answer is no, because the Caliph himself is from the Ibad. They are servants of Allah. And where do the rights come from? They come from Allah. So this is a major distinction. In humanist philosophy, the rights come from humans to humans, which changes every 70 years. Today, the tranny has rights. In 70 years from now, someone else may have different types of rights. And today, uh, 70 years ago, the, the tranny never had rights. But this is what the changing human rights that occur every so often. But we as Muslims, what does our deen inform us of? It informs us of what is known as al ibad the rights of the servants dictated to us by Allah, the creator of humanity. This is why for us, 1400 years ago, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, over 1400 years ago, the Quran was revealed and the sunnah was delivered, the Quran gave various rights to everyone, including the slave. The racial division was abolished. Before the abolition in America, the racial divisions within Arab society, those were abolished. Similarly, the rights of women were given before the Chartists and before the suffragettes. Before the suffragettes movement, Surah Al-Nisa was revealed, the chapter of women, where women were given rights. That, that is why the chapter is referred to as the chapter of women, because the women were given the rights of inheritance laws. The rights of inheriting and they were given various other rights. The denigration of women was, re was revoked over 1400 years ago when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed Surah Al-Nur. Where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed the rights of women of what? Protecting their chastity. So the hijab and the jilbab was not seen as a means of oppression because in Muslim society when a woman was wearing the niqab or the jilbab she was known as being a free woman. Of course in the modern age this was overturned. We live in an inverted society that the free woman is deemed the woman who walks around naked 
But in Islam, it was the woman who was covered. Why? Because, because of her modesty and her chastity, she was protected. So we live in inverted times that people discuss human rights, but they will not discuss the right of Allah. They will discuss human laws, but they will not discuss the law of Allah. They, when they say human rights, we say the rights of the servants. So those people who are affected by humanist philosophies or philosophies which have uh, a moral code which changes a, a relative moral code that changes every so often, they should realize that Islam has those rights which are fixed throughout time. Murder was never right and never will be right. There is no such thing as the use of chemical weapons that kill indiscriminately. That is prohibited in the Sharia of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The point being that the Sharia of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is a mercy from Allah. It's a mercy from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala even when people observe it as being ostensible harshness. My mercy encompasses everything. And Rahmati Sabakat Ghadabi. My mercy precedes my anger, the divine anger. That even the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala encompasses those places and people that we would never think of. Sometimes we may see something outwardly as being a punishment. But in reality, it's a mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the Sharia of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was revealed for a purpose of what? For the purpose of protecting humankind, not to destroy humankind. So, so going back to what I mentioned with regard to doubts on Islam, as I mentioned in the beginning, those doubts are either based on what? A false epistemology, a method of thinking, or they are based upon what? Are, uh, those doubts are based upon uh, desires for someone desiring something to be like something else. And also uh, with uh, people wanting to do away with Sharia of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or not being able to understand certain concepts. But the defense, the counter, what do we take from today's lecture? What we take from today's lecture is that there are no solid grounds for leaving the deen of Islam. There are no real solid grounds intellectually. But whenever you engage with someone who has actually left Islam, you will realize that the main problem is that they love something more than they love Allah. If you love something more than you love Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then the Iman is weak. And this is why Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, La yu'minu ahadukum hatta akuna ahabba ilayhi min walidihi wa waladihi wa nasi ajma'in. Yes, famous hadith. None of you is a believer until I become more beloved to him than his parents, his children, and all of humanity. What does that mean? Love for Allah and His Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is the foundation of Iman. This is why, how will you preserve Islam 
for the future generations? How will you preserve Islam for generation Z? Or generation Z as they say in America. You will preserve Islam by preserving love for Allah and His Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. That is why nurture your children firstly on the love for Allah and love for Rasulullah But how do you increase their love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? By when raising them, make them realize the number of favors Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has granted them. From what? From having kind parents, loving parents. From having the ni'matul aql, the, the favor of Allah, the mind. The favor of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the eyes. Having eyesight. The favor of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in having good health. The favor of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in having fresh water to drink and to bathe oneself. Nurture them and love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then the love of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi wa sallam. And that is how we will preserve the iman of future generations. I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to enable us to preserve our iman and to keep us steadfast on the Quran and Quran al-Kareem and the sunnah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Aqulu qawli hadha wa astaghfirullahi wa lakum wa